gonna bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? J A N G O. The D is silent. Gentlemen, you have my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Who said? Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. That's right, people, and welcome back to Films for Amigos. Today we try something new as the Amigos join the direct discussion of the films of Quentin Tarantino. And joining myself as usual is Sam, Big Dan, and the Amigo himself, Francis Lee. Welcome back everybody to episode 44 of Films of Amigos. A little spin on the old format this week. We're doing director discussion where we talk through um, the works of a selected director, what we like about them, don't don't like about them, things that made that director unique. And this week's pick, what did we go with, guys? Fran, do you want to tell us? Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. Does anybody know how many films he's made? His official number, or yeah, we. <laughs> well, of course, this is this is this is the discussion point. He's made what's gone then, Dan? What's his? What's Quinton's version of events? Nine, nine. And how many nine. is it really? Five hundred. Eleven. Ten. If you split think, out, I think it's ten. If you split Kill Bill, he says yeah. Kill Bill's one, doesn't it? Yeah, it's weird, but yeah, they're two separate films. Does anybody want to? Does anybody have the full list in front of them by release year? Yes. Part, part of my comprehensive notes, I do do have that info. We've got nine nights here. Right. Let's have one at a time, boys. Let's keep this orderly. <laughs> <laughs> ben, what's the first film? It's Reservoir Dogs in 1992. Fran, what's number two? In 1994, he follows it up with Pulp Fiction. Dan, what's number three? 1997, Jackie Brown. Then Kill Bill Volume 1, 2003. Ben? Kill Bill Volume 2, 2004. Next one, Fran? 2007, he follows it up with uh, one half of the grindhouse, Death Proof. Dan, you know the format, you're next. 2009, Glorious Bastards. Yes. And then Hateful Eight, 2015. Oh no, I've skipped that. I've skipped that. Welcome back. Skip to... Skip to... <laughs> hang on, hang on. Django Unchained, yes. 2012. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Come from what's next one? Big surprise, people. Uh, so 2015, Hateful Eight. Yeah. And then. The most re- latest release, Ben? Uh, this is um, best film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 2019. I feel like you said that just to try and annoy me, but I ain't going to buy it. It was, I want, I want ruffle some feathers early. <laughs> ruffle some feathers, <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, hey, I'll ask you a quick question then, just for a bit of Quinton uh, trivia. Which one of those films has the longest running time, according to IMDb? Four, hateful eight. Four, hateful eight. Kill Bill, because it's part one and two together. No, it, the answer was hateful eight. 
Damn it, guys. If that, were a, if that were a pub quiz, you would have. Three I think it was a question. Yeah, hatefully got a bit of a bum deal though when it came out. Yeah, it didn't go to didn't go to all cinemas. What was that all? It about? went like all mainstream. Wasn't there like an issue with one of the? Um, I thought it started out in America, and then I can't remember if it was yeah, a deal fell through for certain cinemas, or there was just exclusivity somewhere. But I remember so we had to because uh, only wanted to show it a certain way. I know, you... like because of the format. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember. I remember you. I just remember we yeah, couldn't see it. I thought it was something to do with the cinemas, wasn't it? It was. Um... Well, as always with films of amigos, we bring you the hard-hitting, accurate information <laughs> about films. Uh, just yeah. everybody. I, I completely forgot about it. Fran's the one who obviously remembered. You should have, you should have properly researched it if, if you want to bring it up. Do we go to the? I did. In yeah. 2015, when Hit for Late came out. <laughs> It went out every cinema. I remember we had to. We were able to see us. Then we. Then we go. We had to go to Odin, and at this point in time, you know, this is a true time travel moment. We could have gone back and ended this friendship with Fran, and I think you were you there as well, Dan. Yeah, yeah. So we could have really just cut you two off at that point, and you know, me and Bernard had carried on with his lives with drink, but we didn't. And here you are today on Films with Amigos. Here we are today, hard-hitting info. I can't believe I know you in 2015. I know, 2015, Fran were a young spring chicken. Anyway, let me ask you another question on um, Quentin Quentin Tarantino trivia. Two-time Oscar winner, can you name what films he won the Oscars for? And then I'll ask you what the Oscar was for, what time, so... Can anybody guess the two films that is an Oscar winner? Um, um, is this like any? Is it any Oscar or one specific to Tarantino? Well, they won two Oscars, Quentin Tarantino. I'm not telling you what for. You have to guess I mean, that in the next part. I thought Hayfley won best score. No, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, this is it, these are his Oscars. His, not the films. To, okay. No, not, not the films. His. We're talking about him. Uh-huh. But what two films in, in these Oscars? It's like, well, yeah, shit, his yeah. pop quiz, this. <laughs> yeah. me, me and Ben are one point up anyway on Fran, so we've not got to worry about this one. <laughs> Come on, Fran, take a guess. Uh, Hazel 8. <laughs> uh, Fiction. <laughs> screenplay. <laughs> yep. Um, Jackie Brown writing. No, Ben Ben was right with Pulp Fiction uh, screenplay written directly for screen, so he won an Oscar for that. Um, not Jackie Brown, not Hateful Eight. Ah. More recent entry. I think Once Upon a Time. Uh, oh, we're talking film then, aren't we? Though? No, what was the I'm second? Gonna, put your eye in misery because it's painful. It was Django and Chandy won that for original screenplay as well. Best writing. Damn. There's his two, but you were right. Um, Once Upon a Time got several nominations in Glorious Bastards. I think, you know, a, a variety of nominations for most of his films, either for actors or for um, various other crew members and, and cast members that did things towards the film. All right, what's Quentin's middle name? 
<laughs> you don't ask the questions here, friend. This is, a... is it Jacob? Is it Jacob? Incorrect. It's incorrect. Oh. It's close ish. No, actually, no, no. No, no. From the you're, you're a point down. It's not Spider. Spider's the name of the rapist in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, you might have pulled it from somewhere. Are you going to tell us, friend? Because it's the most boring piece of trivia and I really want to get past oh, no, it. I, I, wanted, I wanted people to answer it. Dan? I, I don't know. It's going to be something like Francis. Isn't it? it's going to be Jeremiah. Yeah. Stupid. Oh, Jerome. Jerome. I know it was something beginning with J because I saw it on IMDb. Hard-hitting facts. All right, so what year was Quentin Tarantino born? <laughs> oh, my God. I, I can't believe we're turning this into Quentin's quiz. We need to get... Um, it was born in 1968. Incorrect also. He's, he's 58 he's fifty-eight now, whatever that makes it. 66. Nope. <laughs> you're really just going to, you're not going to tell us you're going to make. Uh, guess. Well, Ben's not guess. Come on, Ben, why is it? Um, 62. Close. Seven, 64. No, it's 1963. All right, come on, on with the show. Right, welcome back, guys. <laughs> Episode 40. <laughs> That's what I said. I said he was 58. <laughs> Nobody cares how old he is. France, France misinterpreted what this uh, director's discussion was going to be. <laughs> it's about the director. We're, we've, we've covered the films. <laughs> Tick. Now it's the director himself. Nobody did. No, it was born to. Um... <laughs> Tony Tarantino, which was his Italian American dad. We've all read his IMDb page. Well, clearly not. I mean, <laughs> no, didn't even know what year. Let, let's get into this, guys. Let's get into what what makes what. Here's the question for you: What makes a Quentin Tarantino film a Tarantino? There's not one thing, really. Is that it's like a it's just like a list of signature stuff. Violence, tick. Yeah, music. Let's, let's, let's go on. With, yeah, music's another one. But let's go. Let's start with violence and his st- and his style of violence, and maybe pick out a few different examples. Because um, preparing for this podcast, unlike the rest of you, that didn't do absolutely anything. Um, Whoa! I, and I, I rewatched a couple of <laughs> a couple of scenes. One I rewatched Kill Bill last week. Anyway, just out of, just randomly, and um, a couple of interesting things about Kill Bill. When when uh, if you've listened to that interview on Joe Rogan with Quentin Tarantino. He was saying how he um how he set out the the style of fighting and the film is is that Uma Thurman um Black Mamba's fighting their way through different styles of films that he liked. So all the different five members of um the Deadly Viper squad, each one of them like represents a different style of film that he likes. Well they were interesting because when you get to the obviously when you're talking about violence. When you get to uh, the bride versus the crazy eighty-eight, I think that's what they're called, aren't they? In Kill Bill Volume One, obviously that yeah. is the most ridiculous level <laughs> of Quentin Tarantino violence you'll ever get to. So just ridiculous with the blood and gore. How do you think that compares to some of his other stuff? Do you like Do you like Kill Bill? Because I think that's the one where you, first time I watched it, I were a bit like, oh, it's just a bit too leery. I think some of his more recent ones have been there's been like a lot build up to one big ending 
violent scene. Like Django. Yeah. Django. The violence is like the, the punchline, isn't it? Yeah. It's more, more recent films. Yeah, probably all of the the latest four have all built up to that. Whereas, yeah, Kill Bill is a bit more... Uh, yeah. well, I'd, say, I'd, I'd say even before that, I'd say, I'd say probably Kill Bill's the odd one out. Where mm. there is a lot of violence. Like, um, it's kind of like almost the main part of the film, isn't it? Compared to... Uh, yeah, no. These I, others, I which think... are more dialogue centric. Mm. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right with that with Kill Bill, but I think Kill Bill is the anomaly. I think Kill Bill's the one where he lets a different, a lot of a different styles into his film as well. Obviously, Kill Bill Volume One has that whole thing with the animation as well, which, in honesty, think... I'm not a fan of that. I hate that bit. Yeah, I think that's the one that really like separates it. And the fact that like Kill Bill has a sequel. Or another part, just feels like even it's it's kind of like sat in the middle of his his body of work. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of things that make it quite unique. Mm. It was intended to be one film, weren't it? He said, "Yeah." And then he broke it up into two parts. Yeah. What's your favorite of the two parts? I have not seen them for ages, but I think I'm gonna go opposite to you and be like, "Well, I think I remember watching part one." And thinking, oh, the animation bit's cool. So I like it. Oh, part one's my favourite. Yeah. Yeah, volume one's my standard. The problem with volume two is I can't really remember anything about it. Other than coming back. That might have been part one. I I only really remember the the Michael Madsen's character where he has the trailer kind of in the middle of the desert. Almost becomes like a spaghetti western. You say that's his grammar. I know you say you don't remember much about it, but, um, you know, that's the one where you see all the training, where she she goes to training. Uh, You know, she learns that that one-inch punch. Oh, right, yeah, for the finale. Yeah, and obviously she rips her eye out in the trailer. There's there's a lot of good things in two, but I feel like one... um, one one really sets the pace and the tone, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you feel like one could have just been a one and done and actually had like a an eight film body of work at this point? No. Any it, the story is obviously nowhere near complete, is it? Yeah, you can't you can't one. call a film Kill Bill and then not have you. <laughs> no Kill Bill. Kill Bill. But yeah, I think the the only other film that kind of matches Kill Bill for the extreme violence, it's not really violence, it's like, I'd call it extreme gore, is obviously Django, the, mm. the shootout in um, Calvin Candy's mansion at the end. I rewatched that and just, there's just such over the top use of blood splatter <laughs> and like bullets hitting bodies and it's like, like you can hear the bullet like it's going into like custard. That one's like, Extreme, um, again, extreme like gore, but just so good. That, that shootout's like got to be one of his, one of his best ludicrous like action it sequences. It's just so much fun. That's <laughs> how he's described it, and it's it's true to an extent. Oh yeah, definitely. So we talked about violence. You were saying about music from. Oh yeah, I think um, 
Every, I mean, I've not watched Reservoir Dogs again for uh, for a long time, but from Pulp Fiction onwards, oh, again, Jackie Brown's another one. I think we talked about this outside of the podcast, but Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, they're the ones that I've not seen for a very long time. But, you know, there's Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, Inglorious, Django, the soundtrack. It doesn't like quite make the film because I think there's a lot of other stuff um, that he does as a director. Um, it's like it's just his style, the characters, all the other stuff that we'll, we'll kind of come on to. But um, the score is always on point. The scenes, the way that it kind of like it builds like the atmosphere, um, adds the fun. You mentioned it earlier. Um, I think it's just every film is really well scored and also has a really, really strong soundtrack. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when he, when we were listening to that interview on Joe Rogan and he said he spends a lot of time listening to music and kind of picturing, you know, how it'd fit into his films and what music would be best for what scenes. And when, when you just said, like, I wrote down three, three songs um, that I think that go with iconic scenes, I think, in his films. So one is Reservoir Dogs. Do you know do you know the song for the torture scene? Anybody know the name of it? Stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, stuck in the middle with you by uh, Steeler's Wheel, and it's just that one's really good as well because as it comes in and it's like doom, 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 it like it fades in because he's got it on the radio in the background, the actual mm. characters in the film, but then it fades in to the point where it masks all the film sound, and then he starts cutting the guy's ear off, and it's like I'm stuck in the middle with you, and he's like, and then it cuts back, and then he's like starts talking into the dude's ear, and then hello, hello, after he's cut it off. Immense. So that's one. Um, two, Cat People by David Bowie in Inglorious Bastards. Uh, so, yeah, I like that one. Shosh- yeah, Shoshana's um, preparing to implement her plan in the movie theatre and she's putting on the red lipstick and she's looking out of the the top window. Um, you know, all the people kind of spilling into the all, the... all the German army and Nazis and that pouring into the theatre. I think that's a great one. And then... The third one is Unchained, which is a two-pack James Brown remix, which that's the one that comes on when <laughs> when Django starts his spree inside, inside Candy's <laughs> mansion. Absolutely just ridiculous. All Sometimes the, the bang uh... bang. Sorry, friend. Oh, sorry, I was going to say about Kill Bill's. Um, so that opening titles with the... Um, is it... Um, yeah. Bang bang! My baby shot me down. Yeah, that one's great as well. Yeah, I feel like films. So there's a lot of other films that kind of do that, where they they almost like assign a scene to a song to try and build some sort of emotion or atmosphere and stuff. But I don't think, apart from something like Guardians of the Galaxy, I don't think anyone else has done it quite as well as currently in Tarantino. I think there's a lot of. It's almost like he set the stage for that. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I feel like when you watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, you just know that there's going to be something in there, score, music, whatever it is, but that's going to fit a scene. Like it's, I don't know if it's like the way that it's been worked around it. So it's not specifically like, oh, he's chosen a track and then um, the visuals are just kind of like set to that. It's, it, they just work together really well. Whereas I feel like in other films, it's almost like a throwaway thing. It's like, oh, they know this will be catcher. It's an action scene. They're trying to recapture what he's already kind of set. It's like his, his precedent and um, his signature. 
Edgar Wright does a lot of that sort of thing as well, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Edgar Wright. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, I mean, specifically like needle dropping has been around for for quite a while. That's that's going to like the the, the Reservoir Dogs, it where the songs are actually on the radio and then falls into yeah. the scene. Yeah. 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 Sorry. No, 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 no. I was just going to say, I, I, I was just saying, I agree with Fernando. I think, I think the thing with Quentin Tarantino's music, I think it's the diversity of music in the films, and then the different uses of it. Because, um, you know, I think as well, like in Django, there's like um another like Rick Ross hip hop song and stuff, and it's just like whether it, were, you know, making maybe making these conscious choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's like mm-hmm. so that is absolutely a banger in the film. I wouldn't ever listen to that song <laughs> outside of the film, but like it's just I think, you know, the conscious choices of different different selections for the each film, like obviously his his breadth of music that he selects from is just so wide and diverse, but he chooses the right music for each film. Mm. Even in even in Inglorious Bastards, you know the bit when when they've got the the German soldier down on his knees. And they and they've got the whole bear Jew bit where he comes out with a bat, oh, Eli yeah, Roth, yeah. and um, he's like a some music playing in the background just before he smashes his head in, and the music like cuts as it hits him in the head with a bat. It's like this, he uses it in different ways, but I think it's just I think it just plays such an important part of the music. Yeah, like it's yeah, it's like a, a character in itself. It's like it's just used to great effect. Um, but yeah, Edgar Wright. Um, but the only one that I can think of recently as well is, is something like Guardians of the Galaxy where you'd be like, oh, you'd actually like go out your way to find that playlist because what he's compiled is great. And I feel like it's very similar with Tarantino. You look at some of the like the song playlists for each of the films and it's like, they're all iconic. Yeah. Anything else to add on music, guys? I was just going to... Just to, to play the devil's advocate and counterpoint, a lot of the criticism he often gets is to do with his music. They're not Good. using anything original, mm, which I, I do I, think is quite interesting. That the, the, in fact, the, I think the only film he's ever used an original score for was The Hateful Eight, just where he yeah, enlisted Ennio Morricone. But why? Why? Why does it have to be original? Well, it's, it's just it's the fact that he's, he's n- up until the hateful eight never used one. I just, I just think it, I do think it's like an interesting premise that he's essentially taking, I suppose, like other 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 people's songs mm. and creating the the score out of them, mm. rather than coming up with anything kind of unique to the film. Yeah. It's not yeah. like it's a lack of creativity. I, I guess I just think it's. I, think... I, I just think it's one is already. It's, it's kind of one that always crops up, kind of mm. criticisms. That, uh... Uh, but I think where just, just a counterpoint. Yeah, I, guess, that... I just think it's yeah. interesting. I just think it's. Um... I do. I think it's interesting that people think that's a weakness because I think it's his strength. Being it, yeah. it, it takes it takes a good ear to marry up the the music to the film. Yeah, I don't often think he picks. It's not just mainstream stuff that he's gone for is it like like say he has curated it and um he's put the effort into to pick what he wants to go with it 
would say it's all just the obvious choice. Also, it probably just speaks about him about you know him being a fan of music as well. Oh yeah, as much as he is like cinema, it's like music as mm. well. Yeah. Okay, what else do we think makes it well, unique? Obviously, we've talked about the, his two Oscars being for being for Ryan. It's it's got to be dialogue, hasn't it? Yeah, surely. I mean, where do you start? I I think if if we come at it from a diff, come at it from a bit of a odd angle, some of his some of his best writing and things that are like you know authentically Tarantino are um, maybe not the dialogue in the key scenes where it obviously drives the story on and the plot on, but like you know the the obvious one is. Um, Vincent Vega and Jules talking about burgers in Paris, <laughs> Royale with cheese. It's like that one. Um, Inglorious Bastards when Christoph Waltz is telling <laughs> telling uh, Brad Pitt that he's going to get in trouble. You know he's going to be in, he's going to be in trouble. <laughs> and he goes chewed out more like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Just like some of these little <laughs> things like that, they just stick just stick so well. I think yeah, it's it, it's very good. Uh, Tarantino's great at like character dialogue, so it's the interactions between the main cast or even like secondary, you know, extras and stuff. It could be could be anything really. It's just always. Oh, it's not necessarily ex- another thing that I read was that, um, like Tarantino's dialogue isn't specifically like in other films explaining exposition. Um, it's one of the things that I think Tarantino, like. Well, I say manages to do well, but then there's one film that really like infuriates me, so that's why it'd be really low down on my list or high on the, low, lower down on the list. Um, and just by that, Ben, do you <laughs> can you guess which one that would be? No. <laughs> oh. um, but there's, I think he makes a, like a really inter- some really interesting scenes between certain characters. I mean, Inglorious Bastards has been like one of my favourites. Um, so he's got the you know where the, the bar um, and they have the exchanges with the soldier. Um, so some there's some aspects of his films that progress the story and um, explain like what's happening in the plot. But then there's other conversations. So I'm thinking back to something like Reservoir Dogs, where it's it's the open, isn't it? Where they just all sit around a table. It's kind of giving away some like character traits but then not necessarily explaining like what's going to happen yeah i mean that's a great one they're talking the opening scene they're talking about um is it a madonna song that they're on about and one of them's one of them's got a fear i can't remember who it is but you know you just think about that table as well like tim roth steve bruce M. it's like Absolutely, just immense cast. But then they start talking about tipping as well. No, that was it. Yeah, tipping the waitress. And, and... Yeah, and as Steve Rusemi goes, rubs his fingers together, and he says, "Look at this. This is the world's smallest violin playing just for all the waitresses." <laughs> and he's like, "Learn to type." And he's like, "Just such an arsehole. And it's like, <laughs> like you say, it doesn't actually reveal anything in terms of, you know, who's the undercover cop, what's going on in the story, or anything. But it just gives you this little bit, like, of, you know, who's in charge. Yeah, but also, well, I think even though it doesn't progress the plot um, and specifically explain what's happening, um, it does give you, like, I'm going to say there's some context, but it's 
It's more just around like the believability of the conversations that they're having. So because it's it's not like another film, like for instance, Fast and Furious that we watched recently, so Fast 9, we reviewed in our last episode. Oh, it's not live yet, is it? Well, we want people to listen to this, though. Well, it's in live, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, Just play so, yeah, yourself. Fast 9, um, every scene is explaining what's happening in the plot. So it's like the, the audience... Wrong. And... Double alpha. <laughs> 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 um, whereas... <clears throat> In this, so in, in um, Reservoir Dogs, yeah, it's it's just, it's it's almost like grounding each character to be like, oh, but that's a conversation that we would genuinely be having if you overheard them and you were in the diner with them. Whereas in, in Fast 9, it's just, it's always like, what have we got to do? Where's it going to happen? What are the challenges? Family. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't think uh, I don't think many people draw comparisons between Tarantino <laughs> and any of the Fast Saga, but no, to say I, that I, he's, to say, I, I agree that he is a better writer than the writers of Fast and Furious. I also agree. I think all of me goes agree on that one. Wrong, double alpha. <laughs> <laughs> that one line, then recycle it. No, but I agree with you. I think, I think well, obviously, Reservoir Dogs is you know some optimum Tarantino rhyme because. Obviously, it's a heist film where you don't see the heist. Yeah. Um, but then... It, sorry. No, no, there, there's no nothing else to say, I guess. It's just... Uh, obviously, yeah, like you say, it happens in... It happens in, in most of his films, doesn't it? These, off, these off-branch conversations that don't, don't necessarily progress the plot, but they create that air of believability to some extent and then obviously the other film i think the other what he does really well is the films that are meant to be out there and not you know you don't have to believe you don't have to be locked in this world that is you know ultra realism i think he also does that in the writing so like in glorious bastards obviously he throws in plenty of quirky dialogue and comedy yeah also loves a bit of narration as well. Oh yeah. Um and not only just through like dialogue but like breaking up chapters and stuff. So it's all that's another style choice from Tarantino. One thing that really bugs me though, talking about um the dialogue and stuff, and I think the the worst example is probably Death Proof. I'm sure there's like the the, the chat between the girls and where Kurt Russell's at the bar. And I'm sure it's like maybe half an hour of just gibberish. I don't even think. I mean, it's probably not half an hour, but that's what it feels like. And I've only nothing... seen that one once. I can't, can't uh, remember anything about it. Just I have also only seen, cut only seen it once. Yeah, death, death proves. Yeah, it's his worst rated one as well. If you go, and I think it... Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. Yeah, I think it's you know. The style, the grindhouse thing, all that, I think it were always going to jar with a lot of people. And it definitely did for me. I didn't. I weren't into it. I agree, definitely. One of the, the weaker films. I think if you, you talk about the strength of his writing as well, it's worth mentioning films as written as well. So I think the, the, the first one that always comes to mind is True, true Romance. Hmm. And you can Grateful. you can tell like aspects of his of his like writing like bleed through into the film. 
even if it, despite having like um, a different director. I think um, it's, it's kind of like a testament to his, his unique style of writing. Yeah. I, think yeah, I don't well. know any of his who's wrote. What else has he wrote? I think yeah, I'm sure he wrote from Dawn Till Dusk. From Dust Till Dawn. From, yeah, from, from Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. Um, I know he's had a hand in a few others. I think he. I think he. Natural Born Killers. I think was another one. He maybe. I don't. I don't know if he's got sole writing credits for these. By the way. Just, um, apart from True Romance. I mean, Dust Till Dawn as well. You know, just a very quick sh- offshoot branch. He's, he's also dabbled in the old acting. Right. Dust Till Dawn, a few cameos into his own stuff as well, doesn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. cameos in Pulp Fiction. When um, when they turn up to his house and <laughs> makes him that coffee and just, this is that gourmet <laughs> shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny, but... <laughs> He's like, he's like, I know he's the good shit. I buy the nice coffee. <laughs> I don't know any of Yeah, it needs them pods, doesn't it? Back in, back in there, they didn't have them pod machines. <laughs> Killing them dolphins with them pod machines. That's why Doug's as well. He's, he's one of the, the gangsters, isn't he? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's Mr. Brown. Yeah, only he gets killed off fairly quickly in that one. But... Django, I think he's in Django, isn't he? He's in Django. Yeah, I think he's got a small part in Django and a small cameo. What about Jonah Hill cameo in Django? <laughs> Random. Oh, yeah. That's not a cameo. That's not a cameo. That's a. That's a part. Yeah. <laughs> so random, but yeah, I mean, he played. But in, I'm guessing Dust Till Dawn. I think uh, obviously, I, I'm. I think you're probably right, Ben. I'm sure he was definitely a producer on it, and uh, I'm sure he's probably got some kind of writing credit on there as well, but. I just think um, that's obviously a film where he has a big acting part and he plays that creepy psycho very well. Oh yeah, I thought it was it was good in that. I think it's, it's a strength of his characters as well. Um, they're all like so unique. Um, I don't I don't think they ever really like never really overlap. He never really writes the same character twice. And it, he manages to, to blend them with his more recent films than being set in periods of history. I think he manages to catch the dialogue really well as well. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Hateful Eight, they're all very distinct, aren't they? Obviously, yes. It literally just does revolve around all of those in one cabin, basically, for the, for the whole film. So yeah. yeah, they've all got to be unique and distinct for that one. I was just thinking, like to like to, to Kurt Russell's um, John Roof the Hangman, where he, he meets um, Samuel L. Jackson's character out in the snow for the first time, and he's like, "Is he's like, he's like, is that the head of Major Marquis Warren, isn't it?" He says something like, "The way the way characters like use words and yeah, um, no, certain aspects of dialect as well." I think he has like mm-hmm. a. A fearlessness in his writing as well. Like he's not, he's not afraid of repercussions. Let's say. Mm-hmm. No, which no, I, I think, think, you know, which I think I works think, for the best. I think it. Well, yeah, I think that's where he, he grounds it in. I think that's where his um, harsh realism comes in, and where he grounds it, doesn't it? Like, 
you know, particularly obviously Django, he's, he's took a film about slavery and just gone in, you know, uh, quite what I'm sure people think is, a, you know, quite abrupt and raw, but obviously it makes it authentic that things weren't, you know, weren't nice. And uh, obviously then he flips it on his head by letting Django butcher all slave on his end. Another uh, another trademark. Yeah. Just flipping it on its head and, yeah, the old fictional rewriting. Yeah. Just on dialogue, I, I wrote down, I wrote down um, four favourite scenes. And these, you know, there's a bazillion and one to go through, but <laughs> I picked out four, four that always stick in my mind. So one is Reservoir Dogs, when Tim Roth's character, Mr. Orange, is laid dying and um, they're trying to find out who the rat is. And he accuses Mr. Orange of being the rat, Mr. Pink, Steve Bruce and he just screams, I'm fucking dying here, man. I'm fucking dying. And he's like bleeding. It's just such a great scene. It's like, I don't know. It's just something about the way Tim Roth does it. He's like spitting. He's got dribble all down his chin. He's like blood all out of his gut. It's just so raw and like full of emotion. That one's class. Yeah, so um, second one is uh, Stephen Samuel Jackson in Django, the whole scene where he pulls Calvin Candy to one side and I don't know if you remember but Samuel's sat in like an armchair drinking like a, a glass of brandy and he like switches like the character switches because he goes from being like old Stephen, you know, mm. walking around, he's like there, he's, the, he's helping out around the mansion and he switches to being like Calvin's true right hand man and he's like, he's saying like, you know, something's wrong with these people and, and he starts to lay out his suspicions and that's a great scene um talked about it already, but I think the whole scene where they have the German commander on his knees and he, um, Eli Roth taps his medals with Bat and says, what did you get these for? Killing Jews? And he says, bravery. Just like just such a basic bit of dialogue. Mm-hmm. But absolutely meant. And then last but not least is uh, Uma Thurman when she goes to kill Copperhead at the beginning of Kill Bill 1. And they have the whole conversation in the kitchen about, you know, she's trying to say, don't kill me because of my daughter. And they decide they're going to fight. And then Copperhead says, Black Mamba. I should have been motherfucking Black Mamba. It's just like, so good. It's like, it's, it's funny. It's entertaining. Just, I don't know. Just everything about it. So smooth. That's it, guys. There's nobody got any, no favorite scenes. <laughs> Dialogue, no Samuel Jackson doing the old, you know, Royale with cheese. <laughs> Brad Pitt <What>? Italian. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the the, the the when they what about the scene when they're undercover in in Glorious Bastards and they have the whole dry glazer and he lifts his hands up and. <laughs> I mean that that scene, I, I was just trying to think of the best scene in Glorious. But... What about Mike Myers in Inglorious Bastards? Oh yeah, that's that's great. But there I think be... it is the um, <laughs> it is the ordering of the yeah the drinks, the shots, and the celebration. Yeah, it's um, that's a great build up. Maximilian, the son, the son of the soldier, Maximilian. Ah, it's such a good scene. I'll go for one. One last unknown scene. I really like the. I really like the scene in Hateful Eight. 
right towards the end of the film where basically what's left of the gang are trying to entice um, Walter Goggins' character, Chris Mannix, who's the the southern sheriff, onto their side by like um, appealing to his kind of racist nature. Hmm. But then and, and he kind of he like plays along for a second before like um kind of like um revealing that he's, he's kind of like staying allied with Samuel L. Jackson because they, they tried to kill him with the poison coffee. I absolutely love that scene. Oh yeah. Hopefully I've, 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 I've got to rewatch I think, I think what I got a really good actor as well. I'm glad he glad he gets to shine a bit in the in Hateful Eight. Yeah, well, this this is one of the things I wanted to discuss, and I think it's, um, you know, again, definitely not. I'm, I'm sure it's not 100% controlled by Quentin Tarantino, but I guess I think casting for his films, he obviously has he's he's casted a lot of people, and um, obviously he wrote obviously like Kill Bill for Uma Thurman, but I think I think it's a, it's a it's a credit to him for who he picks for the roles. But also just shows again the strength of his, of his film writing for how you get to see people in different ways. If you if you see what I'm saying. Oh yeah, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't. No one else would get Brad Pitt to do that mm-hmm. sort of thing, or Leonardo in in Django. Yeah. Um, you know, Jamie Fox. Jamie Fox is Django. True. I mean, it's great casting. Such a good casting because, and he's like he's just incredible in it. But again, Jamie Fox, you know, no no discredit to him, great actor. But in a Quentin Tarantino film, he's lifted up like another five levels because the dialogue you... and just the, and the role and everything's just so sweet for him. I know what you're gonna say, Will Smith. Yeah, Will Smith. <laughs> yeah, written obviously, for it, written for Will Smith, and again, like, what would that be with Will Smith? Because it feels like it should be Jamie Foxx now. It's like Django, you know, that character was, it feels like it was made for Jamie Foxx, but. Who knows? It might, um, you know, it might, it might not be one of the uh, frequent collaborators and it'd be Will Smith in the next. Just his, his final film is just going to be. Yeah. Just, he's been just dying to work with Will Smith. Introduce him, yeah. But I just have like to look Christoph through. Waltz like... in, in Glorious. Well, like I mean, Christoph Waltz obviously he he lifted Christoph Waltz into another sphere, didn't he? Oh, I've, well, yeah. I don't. I can't remember him before. No, just them. Any of these films back to back? Yeah. We talked. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about dialogue and like great scenes for dialogue, Christoph Waltz when he goes to see the milk farmers at the beginning of *Inglorious Bastards*. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The that is Land- so yeah. good. Landers men just like. Yeah, yeah, coming into that farmhouse and the uh, the father having to cover them for as long as he can. And just like at the end when Shoshana's running across the field and he's, and he's aiming his Luger at her and then he just goes, whoopski, and doesn't shoot and then he goes, revoir, Shoshana. It's just like <laughs> so good. So good. But I wrote down a, I wrote down a crazy list of like people that have been in this film. So Harvey Keitel who plays uh, Mr. White in Reservoir Dogs and then he returns as is it the White Wolf? Is that what they call him? The Wolf? Mr. Wolf. Mr. Wolf, yeah, in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. yeah um, Tim Roth, obviously in Reservoir Dogs and then back in Pulp Fiction with his with his honey bunny in the in the diner. Uh, back Michael Madsen. Well. Yeah, oh yeah, Hateful Eight as well. Steve Bruce Emmy. John Travolta. 
I mean, oh yeah, you ever seen John Travolta in 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 any <laughs> Face Off? Was he in Face Off? Yeah, Face Off. Pulp Fiction was the yeah the, the revival of John Travolta. Yeah. Read a lot about how um, Wait, he talked about that in his uh, yeah. yeah we mentioned already his, his Joe Rogan <laughs> podcast. Uh, so What's the name of the good listen? Like the stunt woman that he uses that then is in. Oh, so like a lot of the more recent one. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, some great casting on uh, Uma Thurman, Pam Greer, Michael Keaton. Oh, yeah. Bruce Willis. Bruce oh, yeah. Willis in Pulp Fiction. Robert De Niro. Well, about, um, I don't know how to say his surname, Dan- Daniel Brühl. You know him who, um, who plays Zemo in, in Marvel films. And he's an alienist. Yeah, as, as the the German soldier in yeah, Inglourious. Yeah, in Inglourious, yeah. And yeah, Michael, I mean, Michael Fassbender, he was in Michael Fassbender, so to such great use in, because of it, Michael Fassbender speaking German, being half mm-hmm. German. It's like, beautiful bit of casting, but yeah, just again, I think the strength of his casting, and I think as well, like the repeat use of certain actors, he obviously knows how to get the best out of them and how to write parts that are great for them. I'd forgotten about the whole falling out with, with Uma Thurman when he nearly killed her in Kill Bill. That was one bit I did uh, read up on. He nearly I, killed he, Uma Thurman? Yeah, he made, he he made her do a, a driving scene, didn't he? Yeah, he insisted that she did the driving. But yeah, crashed into a tree and smashed her knees up. Oh. No good. Yeah, so no some good. dodgy, dodgy yeah. legal cases around not releasing the footage unless she signed sort of a something to say that she wouldn't take any further action. All mm. a bit dodgy. All a bit dodgy. Damn. Yeah. I mean, that's like the the bit of trivia that it, it talked about on on Joe Rogan, and you can read it on IMDb. But like the the whole, it delayed the filming, didn't he, of Kill Bill? Till Uma Thurman's pregnancy were over because he insisted it had to be her. He wrote the part for her. Oh, yeah. And then I'm guessing, is that who's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Isn't it one of her kids? No, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Mayor Hawk makes. Is it yeah. only a small role? Yeah. Oh, we told Margot Robbie as well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, I mean, if, if you're going to mention one spot time in Hollywood, do you? DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Yeah, back. It's like, uh, I think getting both of those two actors in the, in the same film is like crazy. Probably not an easy thing to do. No, but just the power of this. All these films. And the back timing of it as well. Yeah. Just been added to UK Netflix. Yeah, a lot of them have uh, reappeared on UK Netflix, Kill Bill and um, Hateful Eight and a few others yeah, in Glorious, I'm sure. That it... What do we think about his run times then? So, you know... <laughs> this must be a, a big <laughs> negative for you. <laughs> this is so, where it's going to get proper personal now. This is very, it's, it's over it's two hours, isn't it, for like every film? <laughs> so, Wasn't there an actual it... intermission in Hateful Eight? I'm sure there was a... <laughs> I'm sure there's yeah. like a, a natural break. Yeah. Yeah, there was there was an intermission. So Reservoir Dogs one hour thirty nine, Pulp Fiction two hours thirty four, 
Jackie Brown, 2 hours 34. Kill Bill, Volume 1, 1 hour 51. Kill Bill, Volume 2, 2 hours 17. Death Proof, 2 hours 7. Inglorious Bastards, 2 hours 33. Django, 2 hours 45. Hit Flight, 2 hours 48. And then once upon in, in time in Hollywood, 2 hours 41. Now, you know, with no context, that's like... You know, you might as well just put me into a torture room and just let <laughs> let a bunch of torturers just go at me and just stick some bamboo under my fingernails because that sounds horrendous. But I don't really feel it in a lot of them films. You know what I mean? Yeah. When you're watching it, like Inglourious Bastards, two hours thirty-three, it flies by. Compare that to Fast Nine, you feel that two and a half hours. Fast Nine feels like six hours. <laughs> in comparison, I tell you, once upon a time in Hollywood did feel long though. That, I was going to say the the only yeah the only uh, counterpoint to that is once upon a time in Hollywood. Maybe even yeah. Death Proof, but well, um, De- De- Death Proof I never rewatched because I, I didn't like it. Once upon a time in Hollywood, I wasn't a big fan of. Although there was there was definitely sections of it that are really good, and I think it's probably one that I need to revisit, but it wasn't one that I immediately want to go back on. Yeah, some uh, squeaky squeaky, squeaky chair. chair. It's Benjamin. Yeah, sorry. It's the, the office chair. I'm trying not to move. There's some WD-40 on it. Imagine that <laughs> for two hours and 48 minutes, Ben, on that chair squeaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what Army of the Dead was like. Hey. <laughs> we got it in already. Army of the Dead shit. Take that. Mm. It's a earlier podcast. You can go back and listen to it. Well, Great episode. We had, a, we had an audio audio issue. If you remember, we re-recorded a mini version. We still slagged it off though, so you can go back. And <laughs> yeah, that. opinions didn't really change, but still. <laughs> in fact, no, I think, Fran, did, did your opinion not change? Though wasn't, wasn't there a whole thing like you were caught up in the uh, in the I think I, I think of I addressed it. And then, and then I realised that when we did um, Fast Nine, that there was there was an in, like in the moment enjoyment factor, and then also rating it as an actual film. So I feel like if we could just revisit it again, then yeah, there'd be some. You know what's weird scores. as well? Fast Nine's like worlds above Army of Dead, so it's like just so many worlds above. Even when they're in space, <laughs> still better, still better than Army of Dead. Unbelievable. It's debatable, but. Fast and Furious could literally do another film where it turns out Dom's got another brother that they just show oh, you the be same scene. No, no, no. He's already got a sister. He's, he's got another, another brother, and they show the same scenes of his of him and his dad and his brother at the track. But then the camera pans just to show another <laughs> brother in background, and they just repeat the whole film. And it would still be better than Army of Dead. Let us know what you think on Instagram. Uh, let's get we... back let's, let's back get back to into Quentin. Tarantino back to Quinn we, we talked about Fran had an original request for us to all rank all nine films um, which, we, which we've we've declined you've, we... you've kind of summarised it though and I think everyone's in agreement that the, the lower end is, is going to be populated by Death Proof and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood except for Ben but yeah I feel like you, you could still rate them I mean, we're going to have our top three and then just, just carry on. There's only nine. <laughs> it's not like, you know... Well, let's hear, let's, hear, let's go around and hear everyone's top threes and who wants to take us away. 
Go for it, Sam. Damn. I didn't want to go first, but I will do. So, it is nearly an, an impossible task. At that to, top end, I think it is. Yeah. That top end, because I, I would... If you could put joint first, I would just cop out and joint first in most of these films. But I've I've decided to settle on Pulp Fiction as number one because I think it's a difficult one. I just think it's immense. I think it's... Top three points for that film. What, what is it? Well, for, for Pulp Fiction? Yeah, if you could just be like, right, it's this, this, this. Go. I, I think we should go around everyone's first and then we'll... Okay. Yeah. We can. Yeah, we can. Thank you, Daniel. Discuss those those common common grounds. One Pulp Fiction, then two Inglorious Bastards, three Django Unchained. <laughs> um, four and five were Reservoir Dogs and, and Kill Bill Volume One. They were the they were the ones knocking at knocking at the door. But then in Hateful Eight versus Kill Bill Volume One's very close. Reservoir Dogs versus uh, Django for the third spot. A lot a lot of contention. But again, like I could just probably just juggle them around any day where you can still feel happy with selection. But that's what I went with. What did you go for, Fran? Uh, number one spot is Inglorious Bastards. But then I might, ah, it's number one, but then I might, right, the top three, um, it could just be yeah, in, in no particular order, to be honest, is exactly the same. It's Inglorious, Django and Pulp. Following that, if I was to do a top five, um, Having discussed it now, I was like, oh, I don't know which one it would be, but now I think I know what it wouldn't be. So that leaves Hateful Eight and Kill Bill. Reservoir Dogs for me, just, just it, it doesn't make top five for me. It's fair enough. It's fair enough. What about you, Dan? Yeah, a lot of common ground here. Also Pulp Fiction, number one. Also Inglorious Bastards, number two. Uh Reservoir Dogs did sneak into number three just Ooh. ahead of Django. But yeah, very similar. Go for it. Yeah, so so my, my three aren't really in one, two, and three order. I think they're just my, my favourite three films. Which... So we're like so we're gonna force you to put them in one, two, and three order. <laughs> I'll just I'll just I'll just oh, read no. them out in the way I wrote them then. Uh, Pulp fiction. Reservoir Dogs. And once upon a time in Hollywood. Damn. I once upon a time in Hollywood. All the way Pips, up there. Pip, Pips Inglorious and Django. Well, I don't think I like Inglorious Bastards as much as you guys. I think it's um I think it's a good film. Potentially even a really good film. But there's a, a lot of others, others I prefer. I prefer Django, I think, over Inglorious. And I, once upon I a might time even in Hollywood. Kill Bill. Damn. Yeah, because once upon just, Nothing happens for an hour. It just stayed with me, though. It's just like I don't know. I think uh, I like I like the I really like the melancholy aspect of it. I know that's probably not to everyone's taste. Um. Yeah, just so so many of the scenes stuck with me afterwards. Come on, give and me then, your you top know, top three scenes then. Top three scenes. Um, absolutely love the. The scene where DiCaprio is filming the the Lancer episode, you know, he gets a he plays the heavy on the the Western Lancer, but he can't remember his lines. Um, and they keep having to like go back and reset the camera, and the camera's like following like the, uh, the same path yeah. as it goes back, and then 
goes forward again. Um, I really like that bit. No, Brad Pitt when he goes to the Manson, the kind of the, the Manson family ranch. I think yeah. I think it's like the George Spall Ranch in the film. It's got its old name. And that, that that was like so tense, you know. And you know, and that was like the Manson family, and you didn't want to like, you didn't want anything bad to happen to Brad Pitt. Um, and then in, we've already spoken about the using the violence as a as kind of like a punchline. The bit where Leonardo DiCaprio gets the flame for it at the end oh, made man. me laugh out loud in the cinema, more so than like some a lot of recent comedies. That's Hey, uh, and, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is only redeemable by that end scene. Without it, I think it would have just been a complete flop. Yeah, I do. I do, I do have to agree. I think I think the last the the last act of the film, the last quarter, really carries it. Like I get it for like the love of cinema and his yeah. his putting his like it's like his passion on screen. But then I just don't as a as a movie goer didn't enjoy it as an experience and i had such high expectations even after watching um hateful eight i just i was like oh man i mean how could he go wrong like it's it's quentin tarantino and he's got like one of the like cleanest sheets for for a director so it it was you know going in thinking it's gonna be absolutely amazing and then it just left complete well i was gonna say left completely disappointed but actually no because the last 15 minutes are absolutely fucking nuts um, and then you just think, ah, oh, it could have just been the whole film. I think I again, I knew... like... sorry, no. No. I just wish I knew more going in about the actual real world events. I think that would have helped a bit. Yeah, more. yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, it is one. Of didn't one it make I you? Again. Didn't it make you think they're like, ah, oh, you're going to read about it after? If anything, that film kind of like prompted like a a a, a more like more interest in into the events that occurred well he's wrote a book hasn't he? he's wrote a novel I've just like an extension yeah. of the film I which think, i feel I like you... might be even better so I, I might even just i might because I've, I've read that that is good so i was just like oh, okay well i might give that a try and see if yeah if that that pulls me in again because even though he's got like i feel like one bad film i say bad but it's not really that bad i feel like oh that might just salvage it somewhat but anyway, sorry, Ben. I just completely like interjected. I think I think you're right, yeah. and I think I think the 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 writing, the style, the casting, the music, everything is still great. In oh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think it's just the subject matter, the actual story. If you don't connect with it, it's just a bit boring. It, it, it's it's a long time. Yeah, and it can feel boring. Yeah, I don't, I think you probably you probably making valid points, but I think it's just for for me it. it Something about it that I don't know. It just it just captured me. I think in the cinema. Can't yeah, deny I mean, that. Brad I, Pitt I, yeah, is I couldn't, I couldn't quite tell you what. Um, I still can't. Yeah, just, you, just Brad, you put Brad it above Pitt glorious driving. though. Still, still above <laughs> yeah. glorious. I mean, I, I think I'd, I think I'd put hateful eight above glorious as well. What? Yeah, just yeah. I, I hateful eight is very good. The problem I have in glorious is I think it. I think there's too many characters, and it doesn't. Linger on each one of them enough. Wrong. Double F. I think. <laughs> I, think. <laughs> I, think uh, I think. I think. it needs more time with each character to build them up. You know, because he, he brings in such great characters, but then you, some of them you only get literally like one scene or 
no. What you're saying is it leaves you wanting more, which makes it just untouchable. It's it's like it's just the perfect mover. What? But it 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 gives you enough. It gives you it gives you the time with the key characters. The key characters are Christoph Waltz and Shoshana. They're the two. Everybody else is just, you know, there to. They're in their world, you know. Even even the bastards are only, uh, uh, you know, you're only you're only following their path because inevitably it is going to collide at the cinema with everybody else. But no, I get you know I'm not. So each to their own, isn't it? And I think uh, obviously one thing that is for certain is that out of his catalogue of nine films or eight, if you want to count Kill Bill as one, the they're all, they're all highly ranked. I think it's fair, a fair comment. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just can't wait to see what this 10th endeavour is, or it's, what it's going to be. I think Fast it might be low-key. I don't, I don't think it'll be... Uh... Fast and Furious 10. You don't think it'll <laughs> be a space opera? I don't think it'll be... Yeah, it won't be like a, a big epic film, I don't think. I think it'll be quite a... No, I don't, I don't agree. I... I don't I agree. I don't. I think because because he's already writing theatre plays that will be low key. I think he'll do that for a few years. I think we can't expect a, a Tarantino film for another five years. Do you think that Hans Lander will have a brother and then he'll be the antagonist? Well, he said. He said. The, I think he said that Kill Bill Volume Three were always something you were interested in. It, it, he said on oh, that interview, didn't he? He ran about reshooting Reservoir Dogs at one point. We're completely like new cast, but I think he'll nah. go into theatre. He'll do the theatre thing for a few years, and then I think he'll. It, it, I think he'll have already wrote his tenth film. I think it'll already exist. Well, looking at this, uh, looking at the um, the CV at the minute, um, Tarantino's always released like a film every couple of years. So the only big break was like what Jackie Brown to Kill Bill. So we're looking at like twenty twenty two, maybe twenty yeah, twenty three. I need to a new child. And oh, so add another extra year. Twenty twenty four, and we'll just get this like massive Star Wars soap in a space opera. Some sci fi. He'll just dabble in sci fi and just be like, guys, fuck it. I've got nothing to lose. He's not done a, a, a like a sci fi genre. Yeah, he genre films, doesn't he? So yeah, yeah. I think we could expect either another western. Um, Hopefully, not a sequel. Oh. I'd I'd be disappointed if he went if he went and did a sequel. Mm, yeah, yeah. I don't want I don't want Kill Bill Volume Three. Just by the way, I know I know that's the one people talk about. Unless, but I don't I don't want to see it unless Kill Bill Volume Three is going to get tacked on. So parts one, two, and three is one film, and <laughs> he's still got another massive film to come after. Which is sci-fi District Nine esque? Boom, I'm calling it done. You're calling it Army of Aliens, <laughs> Zack Snyder. No, and Brad is gonna have everybody. He's gonna have like Brad. He's gonna even yeah, fuck it. He's gonna cast Vin Diesel. He's gonna be like, look, after success at Fast and Furious, fuck it. You're in my films now. You're in my world. You best make it soon then, because they're not getting any younger. Nobody's Good. getting any younger. You know what I mean? But. <laughs> All these, all these usual ensemble of repeat actors. I mean, Samuel is. I mean, Samuel. Oh, yeah. Samuel could still go. He's still great. Still time to get Samuel in in a few before he retires. Anything when anybody wants to add before we wrap up this first director's discussion? 
Why did Inglorious not make you number one? I mean, come on. <laughs> Jesus, man, that film is like, it's untouchable. I mean, it, it is. It is amazing. And it's it got, and it's I, just, I used to listen to the soundtrack, even all the bits that are just like scores of, you know, <laughs> of like um, <laughs> operatic music or whatever. He used to have it all on. He used to have it all in a car. Like, I just thought it was so good. And I think it's obviously so quibble, but yeah, just Pulp Fiction. You can't, I used to, you know, you can't underestimate the fact that at some point in your life you have to learn both the John Travolta and Uma Thurman twist. And if you don't know, if you don't know what they are, you know, then you haven't lived because Uma Thurman does the kitty cat twist and John Travolta does like the big broad twist. I know both of them fools. I'll never get caught out in a dance off. Somebody tries to dance off with me, you better get ready because I'm going to, I'm going to pull them. You know, when she ODs, just all of it. Oh, yeah. But still, I can't. Be- I can't believe you put Reservoir Dogs all over it. I just thinking out of films that I enjoyed or I'd go back to. I mean, I've only watched like I may have only watched it once. It just no, no way, man. I'm just not. I'm just not fussed about it. Oh, I Michael all- when he's when he, yeah. Mr. Blonde when he's leaning on that post. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to buy it? It's just... Yeah, I feel like it's... it's is this because... You know, it's, is, it, is, it, is it too low, low concept for you, friend? I think that might be it. I feel like it's it's too low budget. It's too self-contained. But then you could argue that Hateful Eight is. Please, um, but, but did you not listen to the interview? This is the film that spun on his entire career. Oh, absolutely. He, but he planned not, to not get in and out with this one. Is, um, is great. And I, I can't think of any other examples. But um, just looking at this particular one it just didn't i don't know it, it, films like that i like to go back to as the as the top three i mean yeah, inglorious I, and django I, I could just even now just thinking about it it's like yeah, i could i could straight back into inglorious i just there wouldn't be a bit where i can't think of any bits in that film where i think oh man skip this scene not bothered that's why I, I know i love it like same with django an absolutely like brilliant film, but then think of Reservoir Dogs, and I'm just like, ah, oh, no, it's just, it just doesn't have as many like gripping scenes. There's good scenes in it, but just not as good as Inglorious. I just feel like it's a much better, more rounded like product. Guessing between us all, we've seen Jackie Brown and Death Proof the least. I think Jackie yeah, Brown Jackie Brown once. It was yeah. just a tick tick off yeah. the list, but it's probably really good. I feel like you know if yeah. you watch, if I went back and rewatched Reservoir now, I might have a completely different opinion. But I know it definitely wouldn't top. I've only seen Inglourious. Hateful Eight once, Jackie Brown once, Death Proof once, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood once. But I think out of all those, Hateful Eight's the one that I always intended to revisit and just never have. Like Once Upon I, I a Time really in like Hollywood, Hateful Eight, but it's not the most rewatchable film. <laughs> That one feels more like, like, I'm not... a, like you say, is into theatre and stuff now. That one feels more like a play, doesn't it? Just because of yeah. Yeah. the way it's set. Set, yeah, yeah. I really wonder, didn't Netflix break into a four-part series? Hatefully. Didn't they, like, re-edit it and release it? It's like a... Is that UK um, Netflix? Because I can't believe they'd let them do that. I think, yeah. I think, he, I think he let them. I think Quentin let yeah. them. I don't know if it's another, on the UK Netflix. Another network. piece of made-up trivia that Ben's just pulled out of nowhere. <laughs> no, I think I'd, I'd, I'm sure I'd read that as well, but I didn't think it was like it. We couldn't have access to it. Thanks for that. 
I think I think Jackie Brown's is probably potentially most unique film because it's the only one that's based on uh, a book. So it's only like essentially non-original idea. Uh, it's been it's been it's been so long since I've seen yeah, but it. In, yeah, but in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, based on like mainly real events. It's never when you said that's not an original idea. I mean, it's based on book. I mean, he's he's taken a book and adapted the book. It's not like you can base something on real events. That doesn't count as being non-original. Inglot, I mean, he's, he's taken a non-original real events to an extent. But yeah, I see what you mean. No, about. You, you know yeah, what you I, must know what I'm talking uh, about. No, 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 no. I do, but I think they all do. I think they're two different things. You know what I mean? I think obviously, in Once Upon a Time, you know, all these real, some real events, but got them like as close as they can. Even the thing with like Bruce Lee and all that, it, all that's based on real stuff. And then he's put his little twist on him. Obviously, Inglorious is just set in the in a real in the real situation that the Nazis existed. Yeah. But beyond that. It wasn't this super unit going around <laughs> scalping people. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, like Jackie Brown is actually a book, yeah, written yeah. by somebody, and he's he's adapted the the book for screen, which is the only because it's the only one where he's ever taken another somebody else's source material and adapted it himself. And like I've I've seen I've seen a lot of people rate Jackie Brown as his best film. Want to rewatch then, as uh, as the amigos come together potentially, to. Potentially. Nah, we'll just watch Django instead. <laughs> you mean Jang. Jang Inglorious? Just, just refresh everyone and be like, oh. just yeah, Quentin Tarantino marathon, but we'll just skip out once upon a time. And Death Proof. It's gonna have to be a whole day. That's like that's like. <laughs> Nearly twenty percent of his filmography. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what we'll do is we'll just slip dust or dawn in, even though it's not entirely is, and just be like, <laughs> "This will uh... make up for it." <laughs> yeah, not throw in the season there as well. It's previous episode. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about great scenes. It's this birthday cake bit. <laughs> yeah, Epic great, scenes. Great, great scene from Dust or Dawn. You know, intro to the Titty Twister. <laughs> should we do should we do another really great director next um Cr- christopher N- <laughs> nolan Steven i feel Sonic. like all right let's do this <laughs> welcome back guys and we're gonna do christopher nolan next everyone's just agreed it nice one guys right we can do it we can do it look we can do we can talk christopher nolan but when you bring up the film which yep. you will prestige yeah prepare for me to tell Bring you prestige prestige is a, <laughs> is a really good film god dunkirk i know dunkirk's a bag of shit i know dunkirk's a bit pill yeah dunkirk's a bag of shit but it's not as bad as the film oh no that's and when we one. get to the film you know just expect hostility dan, dan and i'll be like hey this is a joint this is a joint number one but i don't know i mean you know dark night it's a really tricky one with that director I think we'll have to have a briefing session before for our Yeah, Dan, we just take this offline. Yeah, you just... can do, but be, but teaming up ain't going to save you from SmackDown that's coming. <laughs> we'll edit that episode. I feel like because Dan and I are like massive fans of Nolan, let just hand over the reins, the directing 
reins for that episode. We'll sort it out. I feel like what'll happen is as soon as you say the word in and before you even get the rest of the title, like, I'll just edit it so there's just a continuous fart noise for like five minutes <laughs> and then we'll just get on to the next film. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're ruining this episode. Quentin Tarantino, great director, great back catalogue. All highly anticipating uh, his 10th film. Almost flawless filmography but he just yeah and did it in 2019 <laughs> everybody's allowed their opinion Fran apart from you when it comes to Interstellar alright and with that one guys <laughs> that's a uh, goodbye from me see you next time Draft for me Gorlarmi <laughs>